it off, but um, hey, it's cooled down nicely, hasn't it? The day is wonderful. But uh, yes, so um, she's, uh, she's sorry she couldn't be here, but uh, certainly, um, hopefully the Lord willing will come some other time and be able to spend some time with you. Um, Joey and Trish entered our life, or we entered their life, I'm not sure which way you want to look at it, at a very important time. And Joey probably doesn't even remember this, but um, both Joey and Trish are very hospitable people, as you know. And we arrived in America. I, have three, I had three children at that stage, all teenagers. So there was five of us, my wife, three children. And all we had with us was 10 suitcases. We had nowhere to stay, nowhere to live. Um, and we just were trusting the Lord that he would, he would supply what was necessary. We didn't come without some financial backing and in terms of uh, the training time. And, but the Lord just took care of us. And it was at Joey and Trisha's home that we actually celebrated our first American Thanksgiving. Do you remember that, brother? And Joey was bold enough, uh, shamelessly bold, bold enough to say, Andy, would you come be part of our Thanksgiving? And would you come and share something from the Word of God with us? And I thought, you don't even know me. Like, wow. And uh, that was really meaningful to me. I'd, I'd been through some difficult time in ministry. And just to have that opportunity... Uh, with your family and to meet your family in that way was very special. So thank you for that. Uh, this is my first time to Connecticut too, by the way. I've never been in Connecticut. I've never been north of New York. Uh, last time I was in New York City was two months after the Twin Towers. So that tells you how long ago uh, those Twin Towers came down and we were there a month later, um, saw that devastation and, and uh, the impact of that was tremendous. But here I am in Newtown, Connecticut. Connecticut is absolutely, stunningly beautiful. It really is. If you don't know that, I just want, I've been all over the world, and there's only one place that comes near Newtown, and that's New Zealand. <laughs> it might be the new part, I'm not sure, but uh, I am, uh, I'm thrilled to be here, really am. I've, Joey's taken me, driven me all over Newtown, and uh, shown me all the sights, so um, loved that, had a great time today with him. For those of you who've come uh, to this conference, uh, some of you will obviously not be back tomorrow, so what I've decided to do tonight <clears throat> through this conference is actually to take up the theme of faith, faith. And I want to look tonight at faith's confidence. So if you've got the, your Bibles, why don't you take them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32, we'll start there together. Uh, Hebrews is what I call a sermonic letter. What I mean by that, it's, it's a letter. We don't know who the author is. Of course, we do. We know it's the Spirit of God um, writing this letter, but we don't know who the human author is. But it's a letter that's written in a sermon kind of form. I won't go into the structure of the letter tonight, but as you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, just listen, listen to the unknown author of this letter 
how he states and what he states up front in this letter with absolute boldness and clarity. Listen to what he says. He says in Hebrews 1 verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world and he is... This is the Son is the radiance of His glory, the glory of God, and the exact representation of God's nature, and upholds all things, all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author of this letter demonstrates complete and utter confidence as to who Jesus Christ is. He points out in numerous ways throughout the letter that Jesus is the final word from God. Uh, He is the better revelation. He is better than the angels, chapter 1. He is a more faithful deliverer than Moses, chapter 3. A better high priest than Aaron, chapter 4. And he provides a better covenant through a better sacrifice, leading to a new and living way. And in contrast to this confidence, we live in a world, do we not, or an age, we could say, of skepticism. So you've come here tonight. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your confidence in Jesus Christ is or in His Word, but I know this. I know that no matter where you are on the spectrum of confidence in Christ, we live in an age and a culture that has influenced you to be skeptical. Some of you are saying, can any good thing come out of New Zealand? We'll see. Doubt distrust, questioning. These things abound all around us. And it doesn't matter who says it or what is said or where something is said. Any claim today that is a truth claim, any claim to truth, and especially to absolute truth, is up for debate. And in fact, it should be debated according to our culture. Ours is an existential, naturalistic culture where the idea of absolute truth or a sovereign, immutable God is considered intellectual claptrap. It's, it's, it's just nonsense in the minds of most young people today that you can talk about a God who has absolute authority and who is the standard of absolute truth. And whether you know it or not, this culture has impacted you. It's influenced you. It's affected you. The life of faith, in contrast to that, is a calling for you and me to trust in a God that we cannot see and to have absolute confidence in His unbelievable promises, both in the present and in the future. And Hebrews 10, verses Uh, Hebrews 10 through 12 is what I call an antidote to a life of existential naturalistic skepticism. It's an antidote. It addresses the necessity of living a life of faith and to do so confidently, to grow in holiness, 
to live a life that reflects the glory, the priority, the absolute, absolute demand of God over us and right of God to rule us and lead us and guide us. We exist, do we not, for the praise and the glory of God, period. It's what we exist for. We don't exist for our praise. We don't exist for our glory. We exist for the praise and the glory of God. And every believer in Jesus Christ is called to overcome the dangers of the culture in which they live. The same dangers, by the way, the same dangers that these people who this author is writing to, these Hebrew Christians, the same dangers they faced. And I'm going I'm to expand on this a little bit further on down maybe uh, tomorrow, but for tonight, just to, to summarize it here, there is the danger in this letter, there are five passages within this letter, major passages that deal with the dangers that were facing these early Christians. There's the danger of drifting from the gospel through apathy and compromise, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. There's the danger of doubting God's word, leading to a lack of assurance of faith in chapters 3, 7, all the way to 4, 13. There's the danger of spiritual dullness, keeping us in a state of immaturity, chapters 5, 11, all the way through to 6, 20. Remember, he says, by this stage, you should be teachers, but I have to come to you and teach you the elementary principles of God's word all over again. He rebukes them. And then finally, there's the danger I've just given you four of the major ones, but the danger of departing from the truth, the danger of apostasy in the Christian life. And so the subject before us is a subject of confident faith. Do you have a confident faith? Could you say that I know, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which he's given to me. He's able to keep it. Can you say with absolute confidence tonight that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus my Lord? Neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. Nothing. Nothing. Can you say that? Confident faith sustains us in difficult times. If you don't have a confident faith, then when difficult times come, you're going to waver. You're going to struggle. You're going to battle to live for Christ. And the Lord Jesus died on a cross not to just give us a ticket to heaven, right? He died to transform us. He died to, to mold and shape us into his likeness so that we would not be conformed into the likeness and compromise in our lives to be like the world. We're saved out of the world. We're still in it, but we're saved out of it. Well, let's read this passage because this is what this passage deals with, confident faith. Hebrews 10, verse 32 states, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing, knowing 
<clears throat> that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, here's the, here's the line you want to notice. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what you promised, what was promised for yet in a little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back to destruction. But of those who have faith in the persevering of the soul, preserving of the soul. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Father, as we come to this text now, God, we need your help. We need you by your spirit to illuminate the truth of this text to our minds and our hearts that you would bring to the forefront those areas in our lives that, Father, we do lack confidence in and that you would expose those even tonight and help us, Lord, to take steps, steps of faith, true saving faith, uh, that, Lord, we might have confidence that we might endure in difficult times. And so, Father, we pray for your blessing on this service and, and over this weekend, that, Lord, you would just build into us an understanding of the gift of faith and what that means for the believer and what it means for the unbeliever. Father, bless your word to our hearts and souls now in Jesus' name. So from our text this, this evening, I, I, want, I want you to see some, some marks of a confident faith necessary to sustain us. Four marks of a confident faith necessary to sustain us and secure the fullness of great reward. That's the essence here. Do not shrink back. Do not give up on this confidence that you've been given and lose this wonderful reward. The first mark I want you to see is in Hebrews 11.1. 1. We're going to start backwards you're all there in verse 32, chapter 10. But I want to jump into Hebrews 1. The reason I read that is because before we go anywhere, we need to understand faith. And a confident faith is, is, is a faith that's rightly defined. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it men of all gained approval. We all know that the righteous man shall live by faith. We just read that in this text. It's also mentioned in Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11. And throughout the scriptures, faith uh, is, is taken up and it's used. This word, this term faith is used in, in a number of different ways. Firstly, faith is used to speak of the body of salvation truth. The body that was once for all, the body of truth that was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, Acts 6, 7. Secondly, it's used to speak of a gift given by God necessary for our salvation and justification. In Romans, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Romans 5, 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so to be justified here means, uh, and to be saved means we have been declared righteous by God. Now we need to be cautious here with this definition, because faith is not seen in the scriptures as the ground of our justification. It's not. I grew up in a church where, where all the time it was, the call was to have faith, to have faith, to have faith. 
as if somehow faith is what saved you. In fact, they would even turn that verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 around and say, by faith you have been saved. And they drop the whole grace thing. Let me say it again. Faith is not the ground of our justification. If faith were the ground of our justification, then faith would be, in effect, a meritorious work, and the gospel message would, after all, be merely another version of justification by works. So what is faith? Well, it's an essential gift. It's the gift that moves us, that carries us along into the, 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 the basis of our salvation, which is the grace of God. For by grace you've been saved, and it's grace alone that saves us. So then faith must have the right object if it's to bring us into salvation, if it's to bring us into sanctification, if it's to bring us into glorification. Our faith must be centered in the right foundation, the foundation of Christ's death, which was a substitutionary death on our behalf for our sin. It was a sufficient death to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin, and it's an effective death to bring spiritual life, eternal life to spiritually dead people. And so the eternal life that we enjoy in Christ flows from the gift of, that flows out of the gift of faith is a life of regeneration. It's a life of justification. It's a life of peace with God, reconciliation, sanctification, and glorification. And all of those things are graces. They're all gifts from God. You can't earn them. If you could earn them, they would cease to be a gift. They would be a work. And what we're called to do if you're an unbeliever here tonight, what, we, what God is calling you to do is to trust, to surrender, to yield, and to place your life into and upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ so that you might have find forgiveness and be reconciled to God and have the hope of eternal life. There's a third way faith is used in the Scripture. It's used as a verb often translated believe. The Greek word behind that is translated believe. It's the same, same for the word faith, the same Greek word, and it involves the whole of our being. It's not just believe intellectually. It's to believe intellectually. It's to believe by an act of the will, and it's to believe in accordance to one's emotions. In other words, we are to have a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ resulting in true joy, inner peace, and full contentment in life. Fourthly, faith is used in the Scriptures as that which we must exercise for growth and holiness and sanctification. And that's really where I'm kind of landing for this weekend. I'm assuming most of you will be saved, but faith by definition is, in its rawest sense, is belief times action. It involves the will, it involves the emotion, it involves the intellect, it involves all of those things. But as we come to Hebrews 11, 1 to 2, look at how this author defines faith. He says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Just stop there. The assurance of things hoped for. Assurance could be translated as the reality. It's the reality of things hoped for. And, and there's, there's several nuances that you can pick out of the Scriptures for this word. One is it's the essence or substance of. The other is, is, is that it's the foundation. Literally, it's, it, this word, this Greek word means to stand under. 
It's, it's the place of our standing, if you like. If this is what the author means here, then he's saying that faith is the foundational support of our hope. Thirdly, it can be translated as a guarantee or a title deed. In other words, it attests to or guarantees something that's been promised. In this case, it would be that faith guarantees the believer's hope. And it, and it can be translated as a confident assurance. For example, in Hebrews 3.14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If you take all those nuances of this word, it could be summed up in this way, that faith is a supernatural certainty that what God has promised will become reality, not because we dreamed it up, not because we brought it into being by our faith, but because God has said he will do it, and I believe that. If you have faith in the promises of God, then you are right now, to some degree, living your life based on the unseen realities of God and His promises. And practically, this means that assurance or reality does not come from our circumstances. And this is liberating. It's liberating for us. Assurance of the Christian faith, assurance of the hope of being, uh, spending eternity with God does not come based upon how we feel in relation to our circumstances, but from this gift of faith that now energizes our hearts to see beyond the human ability of sight. We see this as a reality. We talk about heaven. Anyone been there yet? <laughs> no. As, as Christians, we talk about all kinds of things that we've never seen, that the natural eye cannot see, beyond human sight. And yet we, we see them by the eye of faith. We see them through this gift of faith as though they're as real as the image we see in the mirror when we get up in the morning. We're told later on in Hebrews eleven thirteen that all these people in this chapter of Hebrews 11 died in faith without receiving the promises. So not only did they not, did they not see with the natural eye these promises, they believed them, but they never received them in this life. And the confidence is of faith was such that they died still knowing these promises were going to come to pass. And so we see then that faith is the assurance, or you could say the reality of things hoped for. But secondly, notice what he says. The parallel description in verse 1 brings even more clarity. He says, faith is the conviction of things not seen. That word could actually be translated into this word evidence. It's the evidence. So you have the reality. Faith is the assurance or reality of things hoped for. Faith is secondly the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Seen. Commentator Guthrie states that the Greek word translated conviction means a conviction that is not a static emotion of complacency, but something that is lively and active, not just a state of immovable, immovable dogmatism, but of a vital certainty which impels the believer to stretch out his hand, as it were, and lay hold of those realities on which his hope is fixed, and which, though unseen, are already his in Christ. So we say things like, or Paul could say things like, 
you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And by faith, by faith, that is evidenced to us in the sense that we're not looking for any more blessings outside of Christ. If you have Christ, you have everything. You have all that God can give you. You are ears and joint ears. Whatever he's been given, you've been given. You've become a partaker of every blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He goes on to state, some realities are unseen. This is the commentator Guthrie. Some realities are unseen because they belong to the spiritual realm and some because they lie yet in the future when the spiritual realm will break into this earthly sphere. In either case, he says, the person of faith lives out a bold confidence in God's greater realities. The promises of God, dear friends, the promises of God are of greater reality than the sun that rose this morning. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.38. And this illustrates this confidence, this confidence of faith based on the reality and the evidence of faith. He says, I am convinced. I'm convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why is he so convinced? Did he personally see some evidence of this? No. He's convinced because he had faith to believe what God has revealed in his word. And Jesus has says, all that the Father has given me, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one. And Paul believed that. He's convinced of that. It's a reality to him. Speaking of believers in 2 Corinthians 4, 18, he states, we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are, what? Not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now do you understand why I said the belief in the promises of God are, greater, are a greater reality than the rising of the sun this morning, because the rising of the sun is but a temporary manifestation of God. The promises of God are eternal. So the gift of faith opens our eyes to see the unseen and the way faith, and in this way, faith becomes the substantive proof leading to a deep inner conviction of things hoped for, that is, things still future. So faith enables you and it enables me to see the reality of an unseen, eternal, spiritual realm revealed to us through the Word of God. And only a faith like this, only a faith like this, will, will provide a foundation, a confidence for you to endure in this world through difficult times and, and to enable you to continue to move forward even, even when there are no answers to the many questions you asked. Why did my baby have to die? Why was I raised in an orphanage? Why has my wife got cancer? Why did I lose my job? Why are we financially destitute? Why is it that people hate us? Beloved, this faith is a certain faith. 
And faith rightly defined then as a gift from God of objective reality that leads to a resolute confidence, a guarantee of what's promised. So it's not a blind optimism. It's not something that we manufacture with like, well, faith is like, I hope so. I hope this will happen. It's not blind. It's not some sort of human optimism. No, faith, and it's not even a, it's not even a feeling. <laughs> it might produce feelings, but it's not a feeling. And, and nor is it mere intellectual assent of a doctrine. It is a certainty. It is an absolute certainty that you believe in spite of no physical eye-seeing evidence. And such a faith is to be exercised by every one of us. By every one of us. So then faith is the assurance and conviction that leads to a life of certainty rather than doubt because faith has its object in God's sovereignty and its faithful word not in human reason and not in the ever-changing voice of cultural and popular opinions or in the ever-changing reality of circumstances in which you live. That's the foundation of this weekend. We'll touch on some of this again. The second mark I want you to see of a confident faith. Go back to verse 32 of chapter 10. Chapter 10, 32 through 34. Is it remembers, a confident faith remembers God's past works. It says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. The author here is calling these readers to remember how God had worked in their lives during the most difficult circumstance that they faced after naming the name of Christ. And he describes it here as a great conflict or great ordeal of sufferings. It was through the exercise of their faith in God in earlier days that they were changed, they were transformed, they endured, they moved forward. Remembering this, he says, will help them keep an enduring faith. And notice, he goes on to say in verse 32, that there, there are a number of ways that God changed them with this faith in him. Firstly, notice it says uh, that he, he enlightened them, he gave them spiritual truth, he gave them light in a world of lies. He enlightened them with an understanding of who Jesus really is. Secondly, he showed them that true joy is found in relationship with God, not based upon one's circumstances. When he says you endured a great conflict of sufferings, the circumstances they lived their Christian life in were terrible. They were awful. Imagine you, you go home tonight and, and the, there's people standing outside your home and there's a truck that's loaded and they've confiscated all your property and you're not allowed to go to sleep there tonight because you're a Christian. And they didn't just go, oh, well, it's too hard to be a Christian. I'll compromise, I'll, I'll yield, I'll give in, I'll whatever. No, they endured in their faith. Thirdly, he helped them value, God helped them value his thoughts of them more than what people thought of them. They suffered for Jesus' sake partly by being made, it says, a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. And the mockery and the slander and the attacks against Christians has continued for over 2,000 years, and, it's, and it's, it's ramping up, is it not, even in our culture? And God will help you by faith to value his thoughts of you more than what people think of you. Blessed are those who have been persecuted, Jesus says, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Faith lays hold of these realities. Fourthly, he caused, God caused them to put the needs of others before their own needs, partly by becoming, he says, sharers with those who are so treated. Verse 33, they shared. They, they, they didn't just share what they had. I get that. That's part of it. But they shared in the sufferings. They shared in the pain. They, they, they learned to weep with those who weep. Unbelievers don't do that. Unbelievers in general live for themselves. And if they are helping someone out, it's for their glory. <laughs> but these believers said, no, we're going to put aside self and we're going to become sharers in the burdens of these people who are suffering greatly for the cause of Christ. Fifthly, God revealed his sovereign will for every man over and above the selfish demands of fairness. Verse 34, some were imprisoned and some weren't. Some lost their property some didn't, instead of getting all bent out of shape because that one was prospering and that one was suffering, it says they showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure or the plunder of their property. And lastly, he brought a, char, a change in their priorities and values. Look at the second part of verse 34, the word joyfully there, they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. <laughs> wow. Wow. How can you be joyful when something that bad is going on in your life? By faith. It's the only way. There's no other way. I can't, I can't say to you, well, you can just think up some positive images here and, and, and create some kind of positive response. You can't do that. Because then you would be living not in reality. Because what's really happening is bad stuff is happening to you. But by faith, because you see beyond the natural into the spiritual, you recognize that any suffering for the cause of Christ is actually something to rejoice in. Because God will reward those who have suffered. God will provide uh, and, and justify those people and, and uh, the, deal with the people that have brought these actions against them in a way that will bring a total justice to the situation yet in a future date. In all of these new realities that come through the gospel of grace by faith, we do well to remember and we do well to hold on to in the midst of trials and difficulties. There's a third mark I want you to see, though, of confident faith. Confident faith, thirdly, it focuses on God's will in the present. Verses 35 through 36 of chapter 10. It focuses on God's will in the present. How does it do it? How does, how does genuine saving faith do this? How does it focus on God's will in the present? Well, look at verse 35. It, it does so by not throwing away your confidence. Now, this isn't speaking about self-confidence, but a confidence in Christ. Jesus Christ is the superior person. If, if we had the time to read the book of Hebrews, you would see that, that at the end of the day, who Jesus is, is what's really important. He's not just another sign from God or another word from God. He's the word. God has spoken to us in these last days through his son, period. And the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is to a group of people who are suffering greatly, who are starting to question is it really worth being a Christian? 
I've watched many young people who have gone to college and they, they hang out with these, some of their, their, their classmates and, and uh, sooner or later people know, oh, you're a Christian, you went to church on Sunday? Ha, you really believe that stuff? And they begin to mock. And, and it just grates, you know, and, and you want to be, everybody wants to be liked. Who doesn't want to be liked? Everyone wants to be accepted, but you get isolated by these voices and attacks against you. Well, these people, the author said, did not throw away their confidence. And what he's saying there is they continued to hold on to faith, their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not saying here, believe in yourself. It's not what he's saying. When he's saying that they didn't throw away their confidence, he's not saying they believed in themselves. That's the way the world thinks. That's worldly. That's fleshly. That's nothing to do with Christianity. Rather, they place their confidence again in the provisions and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 6, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills that the Spirit gives life. You can see where Paul's confidence is. It's not in himself. So don't retreat. When you're mocked for being a Christian, step into that. Own that. Don't retreat. Don't shrink back from the public identification of your life with Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is really all about. It's a public declaration that you are now in allegiance to Jesus Christ and you receive, have received him and he is your Lord and your Savior. And whatever the world did to him, you're saying, I'm prepared to endure as well. Don't retreat from public identification because why? Because it comes with a great reward. It comes with a great reward. God said to Abraham in Genesis 5.1, Do not fear, Abraham, I am your shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. John Owen says of this word, he says that the word reward is the glory of heaven, proposes a crown upon them that overcome in their sufferings for the gospel and the future glory, which is also, as also in its original cause, is the fruit of the good pleasure and the sovereign grace of God, whose pleasure is to give you and me the kingdom. Wow. So a radical faith commitment to Jesus Christ leads us to a radical reward in the future. Don't ever lose sight of that. It will help you endure. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing what? That your toil is not in vain. It's not in vain. Man, that verse has sustained me over and over and over again. Human beings are fickle. We're all fickle. We're full on one day and we're cold as the Arctic the next, spiritually speaking. But notice there's a second way we focus on God in the present, and that's not shrink back, but secondly, also by not compromising. Look at verse 36. The statement that you have need of endurance implies these believers are in danger of compromising their faith in Christ and in particular giving up 
on the will of God. Because their suffering was not outside of the sovereign will of God. No matter what you're going through in your life right now, no matter what relational difficulty you're facing, no matter if your, your, your relationship with your parents is, is, is strained or with your girlfriend or your husband or your wife or your boss, whatever you're facing, whatever circumstances, know this, that it's all part of the sovereign will of God. And that God chooses to take all things in life, the good and the bad, the easy and the difficult, the sweet days of our lives and the trials of our lives, and he's able to take all of those things and work them together for good to those who love God and called according to his purpose. He's in control. God's will, of course, refers to his moral commandments and priorities as revealed in the word of God. And these, these dear people were in danger of compromise with Christ, in particular giving up on the will of God just saying it's too difficult to be holy. It's too difficult to walk righteously before God. It won't matter if I tell a little lie here or if I compromise in, in my, my statement of who I am over here. It doesn't matter. Yes, it does. Dear believer, it does. So many Christians today think that, well, I can sin, say, sorry, Lord, please forgive me and everything's gonna be cool. No, no that's not how it is. It matters what you do and how you function in this life as a Christian. There are always, there's always an effect that flows out of that. And maybe the first compromise is, is very small and unnoticeable to anyone but you and the Lord. But it matters because the next compromise will be bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, people say that, you know, they're shocked when someone who's in the ministry falls into moral sin, commits adultery, I think it was John MacArthur who said, look, that man didn't fall very far. And what he meant by that is that, that the compromises of that man's life have been going on for years. And the adultery is just another step in the compromising process. When facing the pressures of trials, it's easy to justify moral compromise. Back in chapter 10 and verse 7 and 9, the author cites Psalm 40 to show that God came to do the Father's, Jesus came to do the Father's will, namely die on the cross. That was not easy, was it? Satan tempted Jesus to dodge it. He said, said to Jesus, you just worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. What's he saying? He's saying, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. You didn't need to die for, uh, and be the sin bearer of this world to, to have the rightful place to rule over this world. But Jesus resisted every compromise and he steadfastly obeyed God's will even when it meant facing the death of a cross. When you're tempted to compromise, or could I, could I ask you this question, where are you tempted to compromise in your life? Right now, what are, the, what are the touch points that you, you're willing to compromise on? What lie is Satan using in that moment of the temptation in your life to cause you to abandon the will of God, the moral will of God, and do what's right? What's he touching you, you with? 
Is he hissing that lie? No one will know this. This is just between you and me. Listen, you can be sending up a storm in the darkest time of midnight. No one in the world sees it. But the scriptures say that our God is an all-knowing and all-seeing God. And when you're sinning as a Christian in the middle of the night, hidden under some bridge or some home or whatever place you're compromising in, God sees it as if it's in the full light of the noonday sun. And we need to understand that so that we run to Christ. We run to the cross and we confess our sin because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, but we need to do more than that. We need to repent of that sin. We need to put it aside and we need to press in by faith, by faith and trust in the will of God. Focus on the will of God and live out that will daily in our lives. Why? Because again, there are eternal benefits. And sadly, I think today we do focus too much on the present benefits rather than the eternal benefits. Much of counseling done in the church today has is, is really, is really turned Jesus into kind of this therapeutic genie that, you know, if you just come to Jesus, just walk with Jesus, then everything in your life's going to be dandy and it's going to be rosy and it's going to be wonderful and you'll have a better marriage and you'll have more money coming and your job will get better. And listen, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up a cross and follow me. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, then you better prepare for some persecution. He didn't promise a good life now. That's future. That's the hope of the believer. This is not our home. This is not the place of rest for us. You know, some of us, we live all our, all our lives to build up a nice little nest egg to, to retire and live in a beautiful home in a beautiful place like Connecticut because it's so sweet and so lovely. And, and we, we strive for all of that, but are we striving for the ultimate rest? Are we pressing towards the upward call of God in Christ? Is that the goal? Do we, do we trust in this moral will of God for us? that he's going to bless us. Yes, we're already blessed, but we're not going to receive the fullness of that until a future time. Lastly, and I'll leave this here, the fourth defining mark of confident faith. Verses 37 to 39, it presses towards the future promises of God. I mean, when have we not, as believers, needed the challenge to live our lives in the light of eternity? We need to be challenged with this. This principle comes to us from Jesus who said, therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come, Matthew 24, 32. And these final verses, the, the author here back in Hebrews is combining two Old Testament texts, Isaiah 26, 20 through 21, and Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. And what he does is establish a contrast between the righteous who live by faith and the wicked who live by sight, and he points out the eternal outcome of each. This is so worth remembering, meditating on, and memorizing. Because in Isaiah's passage, it is the Lord who's coming to punish the wicked. In Habakkuk, it is the revelation of the judgment that will come both to reward the person who lives by faith and to deal with the unrighteous. He says this, verse 37, look at it. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not 
we are not. The, tr the true man of faith, the man who puts his faith in the promises of Christ is, is not, and that woman is not one who shrinks back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Another way of saying that is the only hope we have for the future, the only security we have for the future is based on what Christ has done for us. And so we lean in the midst of a trial. We lean into the trial. When we're being slandered, we lean into the trial. And we trust the Lord. And as 1 Peter 2 talks about it, we entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly and rightly. Nothing's fear in this world. Not on a human scale. We live in a fallen world. We're broken human beings. We're we struggle with, with the indwelling principle of sin every day of our lives. We wrestle against the temptations of the world and all that it offers uh, for us. And, and, and then we have to deal with the direct attacks, as it were, from the evil one. Nothing's fear. We get these ideas. Where do we get them from? Well, maybe you've been watching too much of Joel Osteen. Right? Or others who are in the same ilk, who are promising health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not the Scriptures. We're promised the saving of our soul, being taken into the very presence of Almighty God in a future day, there to dwell with Him forever and ever, where there is no pain, no suffering, no, no tears, no sun, no moon. None of those things are necessary. Why? Because the glory of God will so fill the place and fill us, and our whole purpose for, for being created will be realized in the consummation of the ages when we, like the angels, cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. This God who transcends all others, who's not like us. He's, he's outside of us in that sense. But we get the privilege of reflecting His glory. What a place of honor. And, and as you look at these final two verses, there's a warning and encouragement in these verses. But notice they both have a future focus. We need God's perspective on, on time and eternity. He says, for in, in a very little while. <laughs> what does he mean by that? Well, he just means this is how God looks at it. A, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day to the Lord. It's... it's God, God is eternal. Time is, time is of, of, in a sense, no essence to God. He's eternal. He's an eternal being. Actually, time is created within God, if you like to put it that way. It's a created thing. And we need to grab God's perspective and realize that, that this little while is only a little while. Why? It's a little while in, compa in comparison to the eternal joys and blessings that we'll enter into in, he in heaven. And Paul puts it this way, when facing trials and difficulties in this life that seem to go on and on and on, he says, they are momentary light affliction. <laughs> momentary light affliction, which he says are producing, and this is the contrast, an eternal weight of glory far, far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17. We 
We need to calibrate our thinking. We need to calibrate our understanding of time and eternity and get it right. I know when you're in a trial, it seems forever. Uh, Bob and I have been reading through a, 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 daily, a daily reading, devotional reading, uh, written by Johnny Erickson Tata. <laughs> and you read to this woman's life and the trials and the tribulations. She's a, she's a quadriplegic, but she's had cancer. She has, she, she, she has to be rolled over in bed by someone. She's absolutely, totally dependent on other people to function. And yet she lives in not, her life not grumbling and complaining, but rejoicing in the fact that she and her weakness is able to trust in the provisions and the future that God has for her and bring glory to her God while she lives in that state of weakness. Listen to what she says. She writes this. Physical affliction and emotional pain are, frankly, part of my daily routine. But these hardships are God's way of helping me to get my mind on the hereafter, the eternal and I don't mean the hereafter as a death wish, <laughs> like I wish I was there now, or some sort of psychological crutch or some escape from the reality of my pain. I mean it as a true reality, a true reality. She goes on to say, when God sent a broken neck my way, he blew out the lamps in my life that lit up the here and now and made me so captivate and made it so captivating the dark despair of total and permanent paralysis that followed would, wasn't much fun, but it sure made heaven come alive to me. And one day when our bridegroom comes back, God's going to throw open heaven's shutters. There's not a doubt in my mind that I'll be fantastically more excited and ready for it than if I were still standing on my feet. So a confident faith looks at life through God's perspective, it sees the eternal as being far, far more important than the temporal. But secondly, we live by faith, not by sight. Verse 38, the Christian life begins by faith and the grace of God. It continues in faith and the grace of God and, we are not, and we're not called to live at our emotion, on, on the basis of our emotions or feelings, but we are to live to please Him to live to please Him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith in the preserving of the soul. Habakkuk wrote it this way. He understood this. By the way, his name means one who embraces. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk as some would say. Though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will, what? Rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Ask yourself this question. How would your life be different if you lived with that kind of focus, that eternal focus? Ask yourself this question, what needs to change in your life? What needs to be changed in your life to, to live your life in the light of, of heaven's realities rather than the earth's? 
Christians of confident faith have such a sure hope of eternal blessings, of joy forevermore, of unimaginable glory in the presence of the Savior that they are willing to lose their lives for the sake of Christ. And when we do this, we find them. That's what confident faith is. Confident faith is real faith. It's like those who, it's not like those who after putting their hand to the plow then look back and, and say, you know, ah, oh, I made a mistake. Or, ah, oh, I'd love a little more of the world. That's not confident faith. That's a compromising faith. So what does all this mean? Well, each one of us then, in light of this, needs to have a very clear vision of God's grace and God's past blessings and of God's abounding grace in the present and of God's future glory. And we need to have such a vision of that, such an understanding of that, such a trust in God and His grace that you can say with Paul, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18. Well, we've started well. Let's endure in the present joyfully, confidently, without compromise. Let's do that as we keep before us an eternal perspective as we choose to live by faith and not by sight. Let me pray. Father, oh, your word is so precious. It's so, it's so transformative and life-changing because it reveals you and your purposes for us. You, an eternal God, the self-existent one, the one who didn't need us, you didn't create us because you're some needy being but you created us for your glory. And Lord, you've poured out upon us a grace that is so abounding, so great, so marvelous. And Lord, we are at times overwhelmed with your goodness and your kindness and your forgiveness and your mercy. Oh Lord, would you overwhelm us all the more that we would find ourselves surrendering every part of our lives to you because, Lord, you deserve the glory, because you deserve the praise, because you have modeled and shaped us and created us to be bearers of your image. God, give us such a confident faith that nothing, that no circumstance, that no pressure, no trial would cause us to compromise, to turn back, to drift away from these things. But Lord, that we would persevere and endure because there is great reward for us. Father, we love you and we thank you for these promises in Christ, our Savior, and we pray it in his name for his glory. Amen.